Welcome to the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. Advent has been defined as the arrival of a notable person, thing, or event. And in the Christian church, there are, are actually two arrivals that we mark during these weeks ahead of Christmas. First, we remember the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as a human baby, born as the long-awaited Messiah over 2,000 years ago. Jesus was indeed a very notable person, and his birth was a notable event. But the second arrival we focus on during Advent is the arrival of that same person, this same Jesus, at his second coming, when he will return one day in majestic glory to set everything right on earth, to usher in the final days of this age and to begin a brand new one. In fact, even though we might often think of Advent as a countdown to Christmas, especially if you're among those who open a little Advent calendar door each day and pull out a chocolate, We think of it as a countdown to Christmas, but this second meaning of Advent, waiting for Christ's return, has actually been the more traditional intent of this season. We see how our hope is renewed and restored by looking at the past, even as we wait for Christ's second coming. If you were with us in the past month in November, you know that we focused on the reasons that we have for hope, reasons that those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus have hope that we might explain to those around us. And we saw how stories from the past, both in the Bible and in our own lives, help renew and strengthen our hope and convince us again of the goodness and faithfulness of God. We saw together how God is present with us even in the unknown middle of our own stories. And we explored how the hope that we've been given frees us to be open-handed as we think about investing in the lives of those generations who will come even after our time has passed. Now, during these four Sundays of Advent, we are going to continue to focus on this theme of hope, but we'll look at it from a little bit different perspective. Last month, we looked at our reasons for hope the reason we can solidly place our faith in Jesus Christ. And this month, we'll be exploring on the results of that hope. What difference does it make? Kind of the so what and now what of our hope. Now, before we dig in, I want to pause and acknowledge that for some of us, these stories of hope as we hear them, as we share them, are actually bittersweet. Even as we hear our sisters and brothers share the reason they have to put their hope in Jesus, as they share their own accounts of the goodness and faithfulness of God, even as we're glad for them and find our own faith perhaps encouraged, for some of these, for some of us, we find our own hope challenged and we wonder about our own stories. We hear about answered prayers and wonder perhaps why God hasn't answered ours. We hear about people receiving their hoped-for outcomes, and our own stories maybe don't seem so positive or inspiring. And we recognize that all of these stories are real. 
And so if during this season, as we continue to focus on hope, you find your hope running a bit thin, I want you to know that we are with you, that we stand with you. And it's our desire to come alongside you and help you see how God is with you in these moments as well. I'm so thankful for the ongoing work of care that our Stephen ministers provide for so many. And the hope and remembrance service for, scheduled for a week from this Tuesday is a powerfully meaning opportunity for anyone who's finding that their hope needs some, some bolstering in this season. For anyone whose hopes have been dashed this past year, for anyone feeling a sense of loss, I really invite you to consider attending and participating in that service next Tuesday. Each week, we have Stephen ministers ready to pray for you as you meet with them in the room across the lobby. They'd be happy to sit with you and listen to your requests and pray with you and for you. And I encourage anyone who's listening online and finding you're in need of hope, please email, call the church office. We'd be happy to connect with you as well. Because hope can be tough to hang on to, especially if we think that we are just waiting. Just waiting. Every advent, we know every arrival is preceded by some period of of waiting, of hanging on. We wait for the arrival of our inbound aircraft so we can get going on the leg of our journey, get to the place that we want to go. We wait for the arrival of a green light so we can step on the gas. We wait for the arrival of test results so we can maybe get a clearer diagnosis as to what exactly is going on with us. And sometimes our waiting lasts for just a few seconds. Sometimes it's hours or months or even years, but we get the sense that waiting is part of the rhythm of our lives. Sometimes people wait centuries. And this has actually been the case in both of the senses of Advent that we focus on this month. Because the wait for the arrival of the promised Messiah took a really long time. God's people were longing for a savior, crying out to God, asking for a rescuer who would would be sent to make all things right and new. This was the heart cry we heard from Isaiah this morning. Oh, that you would burst from the heavens and come down. God, we want you to break into our lives, into our world now. We want you to show up. We need your rescue. We need your deliverance. Would you send us a savior? And the sooner the better. And God's people in the time of Isaiah were in fact rescued from exile and brought back to Israel where they could worship God. But it would be almost 700 years before the promised Messiah foretold in many of Isaiah's prophecies would burst from heaven and come down into our world. God's people waited a long time. And an important part of our Advent experience each year is journeying along with them in that waiting. Our retelling and rehearing of those Old Testament prophecies of Christ's first coming help equip us, help get us ready for our waiting for his second arrival. As it turns out, this second waiting has been rather long as well. It's been a couple thousand years, actually, and counting. 
And as we look at the New Testament, we discover it actually didn't take a long time for that wait to seem long. The Apostle Peter, one who had walked with Jesus face to face, learned from him, modeled his life after him, saw Jesus with his own eyes after Jesus had resurrected from the dead. Peter wrote two letters to Christians who already were beginning to get a little antsy in their waiting for Christ's return. Peter wrote two letters that were received by Christians about 30 years after Jesus had risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, promising that he would return. And apparently 30 years was already seeming like a long time for those followers of Jesus who are serving in his name, who are making disciples, who are trying to do the things Jesus taught them to do, and who are already feeling the heat of persecution. They're wondering about this apparent delay in Christ's return. And so much in Peter's letters is written to encourage and reassure these believers whose hope was challenged. But Peter also includes some warnings in his letters. In 2 Peter chapter 3, we read this. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. They deliberately forget that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command, and he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used the water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord. And a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. And so Peter prepares these early disciples, early followers of Jesus to hear the question, so what happened to that promise of Jesus that he was coming back? Just 30 years after Jesus ascended to heaven, Peter says scoffers are going to ask, What's taking him so long? And now 2,000 years later, maybe you've heard that same question. Maybe you've asked that same question, at least in your heart. Maybe you haven't asked it as a scoffer, but as someone who's genuinely wondering, what's going on? Why is this wait so long? Waiting is hard. Peter assures those early Christians, he assures us that it's not a question of Jesus being delayed. It's that God has a plan. He says, God's timetable isn't the same as ours. Don't think of time or days or years the same way that we might think of them when it comes to God. And Peter insists that God's plan is operating on God's timetable, that it's a, that it's a plan rooted in grace and patience. It's not that God is delayed, it's simply that 
He desires that more and more people would have the opportunity to place their faith in Jesus Christ. And it's encouraging to get that glimpse from Peter into this sense of God's timing and plan. But the waiting is still hard. It seems to be a common challenge for people, for God's people, to be patient with God. Certainly as we look at the stories in the Bible, we see there that Abraham and Sarah got impatient with God's promise to give them a son. And so they hatched their own plan to have a child through Sarah's maidservant. We see King Saul get impatient with God's battle plans, and he ends up losing his crown. Loss of hope and a sense of despair can tempt any of us, I think, to take matters into our own hands, to feel like we've got to do something because God doesn't seem to be doing anything. And this is what happened during a moment in history about 160 years before the birth of Jesus. This story comes from the so-called silent period of about 400 years between the end of our Old Testament and the beginning of our New Testament in the Bibles, in our Bibles. And at that time, 160, 170 years before the coming of Christ, Israel was occupied by a, a Hellenist group, a Greek group called the Seleucids. They were one of two groups that ended up filling in the vacuum of the empire of Alexander the Great when he died. And originally, the Seleucids treated the Jews with a measure of tolerance as long as they got from Israel the resources they wanted to extract and as long as they could force some measure of peace. But then in 167 BC, there was a Seleucid ruler named Antiochus who took several significant and drastic actions that seemed to threaten the very existence of Judaism. He tore down Jerusalem's defensive walls. He imposed a harsh new taxation system on the Jews. And then Jewish customs and ceremonies were forbidden, including observing the Sabbath. Torah scrolls, the Hebrew scriptures, were seized and burned. Sacrifices at the Jerusalem temple were abolished. And anyone who insisted to carry out these Jewish traditions and religious acts was subject to a death penalty. The temple in Jerusalem was rededicated to the Greek god Zeus, and a pig was sacrificed on the altar as an act of desecration and as a direct insult to Judaism. Antiochus seemed determined to wipe out Judaism. Now, understandably, the Jewish inhabitants of Jerusalem and Israel were devastated, but there were actually some among them who urged caution, saying maybe we should wait and see. Because the biblical text recorded many instances of Israel's kind of recurring pattern of failing to recognize that God would use the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and other powerful empires to punish God's people, to correct them, and ultimately restore them to their place of honor. And so were those, there were those in the, that time in Israel who were wondering, if we revolt now, would we find ourselves actually fighting against God? Judas Maccabeus, or Judah the Hammer, didn't think so. He rose up as a military leader, and in 164 BC, he led a relatively small band of soldiers, the Maccabees, 
and retook the temple, cleansing it from physical and spiritual filth. In three days from the day that that pagan sacrifice had been offered on the altar, Hebrew priests resumed offering daily sacrifices to God. This is the event that became the basis for Hanukkah, Hanukkah meaning dedication or rededication. This festival that will be celebrated for eight days beginning later this week by people of Jewish faith and culture throughout the world. But if you go on to see the rest of the story, you'll discover that Judas Maccabeus, Judah the Hammer, wasn't content with reclaiming the temple of God. He was determined to overthrow the Seleucids through military might. And so he went on to fight more battles, and he began to win more battles, and then began to lose more and more battles. And then ultimately, in desperation, he formed an alliance with the Romans against the Seleucids, maybe assuming that the enemy of his, his enemy would be his friend. But as we know, that simply set the stage for the Roman Empire to then come over, to then come in and overtake the Seleucids and occupy Israel themselves so that 100 years later, they were oppressing God's people in Israel. Judah the hammer died in battle and God's people would continue to find themselves in the hand of oppressors. There's always this tension, isn't there, between waiting on God and figuring out what we're supposed to do while we're waiting. Trying to be patient, trying to trust God, trying to be still and let God do those things that we know and trust God will do, but trying to figure out what to do in the meantime. I'm sure that at the time of the Maccabees, many Jews would have believed that the desecration of the temple a place of prayer and worship would surely have prompted the Messiah to come in and make everything right. But when he didn't, some people decided to take matters into their own hands. And I think our challenge and our opportunity in any season of waiting for God is to live into this tension, to trust God, but then to discern what is our next best right thing to do. We shouldn't try to help God along if God seems tardy. But we know that God's people are often instrumental in fulfilling God's plans. And so we need to be ready. We need to be listening. We need to be discerning together. We need to be more selfless and less fixated on our own timetables and wait to see what God has in store for us. The hope that we have in God inspires us to rest secure in God's timing. But it also reminds us that we are not frozen in fear and despair, but actually freed to act, to love, and to serve. And as we act, we can ask ourselves, we can discern together, am I doing this out of a sense of desperation or panic or urgency, or frustration? Do I feel like God has somehow dropped the ball and I need to compensate? Or has God filled me with such hope that I'm actually 
a bit excited, humbly anticipating what God might have for me to play as a role in the unfolding of his plans on his timetable? How might we be part of God bringing hope to more and more people on this earth to bring about a better future that perhaps we can't clearly see, but we trust is firmly in God's eye and mind already? Friends, God has not left us in despair. The message of Advent is that a Messiah has come and is coming. We look back to his first arrival, that wait that long preceded Christ's birth, and find our own, heart, our own hope renewed as we await his return. And as we wait, we are encouraged by God's word. We are nourished at our Lord's table. We're comforted and inspired by our brothers and sisters in this body of Christ into which God has formed us. By God's grace and by the work of God's spirit within us, may we indeed be people of hope, ready and willing to move beyond despair. Would you join me in prayer? Loving God, we do thank you for the hope that you have given us through your son, Jesus. Thank you for strengthening that hope in times when we might give in to despair. God, forgive us for times that we are impatient with you. Would you renew our trust and our faith in you? God, thank you for giving us one another so that we can pray blessings and encouragement over each other when our hope is thin. Thank you for times you give us physical reminders of our intangible hope, things like this bread and cup that we share today. Thank you, Father, for the hope that you have planted in us as your people. We pray this in your son's holy name. Amen.